Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. What comes to mind when you think of the phrase self-care? Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes joins us on the podcast to discuss the spiritual benefits of self-care and its role in our human flourishing. In her book, Sacred Self-Care, Dr. Shaniqua offers practical strategies for caring for ourselves in body, mind, and soul. In our conversation, she explains that we'll be able to care for others and live out our purposes in the world much more effectively when we make sure that our needs are addressed. I loved talking with Shaniqua. She is delightful and wise and challenging and a wonderful teacher. And if you listen to the end of the podcast, I've included an excerpt in which Shaniqua describes how we can use her book as an accessible and nourishing devotional during Lent. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes is a clinical psychologist and professor of practical theology and pastoral care at Columbia Theological Seminary. Her work focuses upon writing and ministering to clergy and faith-based activists and supporting women of color engaged in Christian social justice activism. She is the author of I Bring the Voices of My People and Too Heavy a Yoke. She lives in Atlanta, Georgia. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here. I want to talk about your book, Sacred Self-Care, but first I'd love to start by asking a few questions about your professional life. Our audience is made up primarily of women who are connected with academia in one way or another, so I'm interested in focusing our conversation in that space. So as I was reading about you, you describe yourself as a psychologist, a theologian, and justice advocate. Can you tell us a little bit about your path into this this place at this time? Yeah, and you know, in, in this setting, I'll I'll describe my path as really beginning in undergraduate, where I was grappling with these dual interests. One was racial justice activism, and that comes from my family lineage. And then I was also really intrigued by psychology. So I majored in both psychology and Mm African-American studies in undergraduate and was wrestling with some of the questions that have come back to me over and over again in in my scholarship. Um, From there, I decided to get my doctorate in clinical psychology. So I went to graduate school, did my um, master's and, and doctorate in clinical psychology, and started as a faculty member. In, in in psychology. 
I um and and along with this sort of professional development was this other theme of my spiritual development, mm-hmm. right? I had been involved in a church um my whole life, my my family's church. I was a third or fourth generation at that particular church and um it was a church that did not believe in women in ministry. Mm-hmm. And so while I had experienced um in undergrad this strong sense of calling and I talked about my my work as a sense of calling going into ministry was not a possible I didn't even envision it. I just it just wasn't on the radar at all. Right. Um and so I kind of directed it towards okay, here are these other fields where I think I can do this. And um it was while I was a faculty member starting to do some work in my local church with the women's ministry that I heard my call more clearly, right? Mm-hmm. And realized it was a call to ministry. So left that faculty position to go back to school to seminary and got my MDiv. And since then after after that, I became a seminary faculty member. And so um I have this sort of um multidisciplinary background that continues to impact how I do my work. So what have been, um, as you reflect on your life in the university and in seminary and, and, you know, through teaching and learning, what have been some of the gifts that you've noticed? And then what are some of the challenges? Um, the, the gifts of this um, vocation are really, it's been a place in which I could grow more into who I am. Um, through my scholarship, I tend to I tend to do work on the questions that pertain most to my life, right? So um, my book on the strong black woman comes out of my struggle with that archetype. Yeah. My book on racial reconciliation comes from being in the racial reconciliation movement. Um, this latest book on self-care comes from my struggle with self-care, right? And so for me, it's really been this opportunity to dive into the questions that are are most central to my own existence and the places where I see points of convergence, right? Where I see my experience connecting to the experiences of of other people, um, especially other women, mm-hmm. and and then saying, I think maybe I have something that can that can speak into that. So that's been one of the gifts. Um, I love the opportunity as a seminary faculty member to help shape the leaders of the church. Mm -hmm. It is one of the greatest joys. And I think really one of the greatest privileges anybody could could ever have to know that what I do in the classroom um, may impact people whom I will never come into contact with, right? And so um, that's been one of the the gifts. Uh, A big challenge across academic spaces has been these spaces aren't made for women. Right. Um, When I started my career in psychology, um, I started meeting with all these senior faculty members and I was trying to get a sense of of what helped them to get tenure and to be successful. And one of the things I noticed is that most of the, the men, actually almost all of them, had wives who were critical supports to their career, yeah. wives who, um, you know, sometimes they were typing up their their books and 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 editing things, but often wives who had chosen other jobs that allowed them to be more present to the family, so that the men could go off and do the things they needed to do to move forward in the academy. 
And so as a woman, I think um, even as there are more of us in the academy and often in positions of leadership, we fit, still find structures that really weren't created for us and really were created for people, for, for, for people um, and who are men um, who are assumed to have this other support structure that will handle everything else, right? That will handle the kids getting to and from school and the doctor's appointments and, and managing the labor of the household. And so I find that, that that continues to be a struggle in a lot of ways. Women are expected to do a lot more caregiving work in our jobs, in the academy, but everywhere we are, right? And that is not rewarded necessarily, although it's often punished if we don't do it. Right. And it often gets in the way of our own career development. So trying to figure out how do we move forward? How do we be good at our jobs? But how do I also be a good wife and a good mother and a good daughter? And and, and just the juggling that we're having to do in a, in a way that many of our male counterparts don't. So I'm curious to know, um, you know, with your experience, what advice would you have for a young grad student or a new faculty person, someone who's kind of encountering these these challenges and also exploring the gifts of the academy? What advice would you have for them? I would say get very clear about, um, especially when it comes to teaching and research, get very clear about what your interests are. And think about the ways in which your interests can also serve the interests of the institution, hmm. right? But there's always that balance between what am I really interested in doing and what does the institution need? And be a team player in trying to make sure you're meeting the needs of the institution so that you can also ask for more space to meet your needs. So I, when I design, I design my classes um, my overall teaching portfolio, there are classes I'm really interested in teaching. There are classes I know my institution needs me to to, to teach. And I'm, I'm going to volunteer to teach those, right? Like you can put that on my schedule every time because I know that gives me some, some um, the, the grace to be able to say, and over here, I want to teach this. So I would say that. And then, um, so getting clear about that and then be clear about what is required of you and learn to say no to everything else. The saying no is really hard for women in higher ed, right? And and I mean, I've been in higher ed over 20 years, and I'm still often surprised at the degree to which my male colleagues are saying no, mm. right? Things that often the women will think, oh, everybody has to do this. So I just have to take on this assignment. And then I learned from a male colleague, they're like, I don't do that. I've told them I don't want to do that. I'm like, wait, that's an option? <laughs> I didn't have to be doing this. So I think learning that we have a lot more choice in, um, in not only higher ed, but these professional positions, right, that often require these advanced degrees, we often have a lot more choice and freedom that we make use of as women because we have these Invoice, invisible voices in our heads, right? These people, invisible people that we think are telling us we have to do things a certain way. So for me, it's really been about learning how to see where I have choice and freedom. And then how do I live into that freedom, right? Wow. Yes, that is, I mean, 
I'm just having all kinds of bells going off in my own in my own mind right now. I was just I was just in a a conversation yesterday where I was asked to do something, and it was so painful to say no, but I knew that I needed to do it, and they were very yeah. gracious about it. Um, but it's uh all of you do have these invisible voices or this feeling like, you know, do I even belong here if I'm not willing to take on this new task? Yeah. And it taps into our identities as Christian women, especially because good Christian girls want to be helpful. Yeah. Right. We're socialized to be helpful. And so when we have to advocate for ourselves and say no, it makes us feel like we're not being good Christian women, right? Mm -hmm. And it just really gets to the core often of our identities. And so we have to really work through that and and, and grapple through that. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is an example of your wisdom that I have been enjoying in your book. So let's move on to talk about your book, Sacred Self-Care. It is beautiful, beautifully written. And it's such a practical book too. I really love the way you build these bridges between the concepts of self-care and spiritual formation. It seems like a message that the world really needs. So I'd like to begin by asking about the the birth process of the book, how it came to be. You mentioned a few um, little nuggets just in passing that describe um, some of the book's history. So can you tell us a little bit about how this book came to be? Yeah, um, it actually connects to my call to ministry. Mm -hmm. I was um, in the first few years of my faculty's career dealing with a lot of stress-related health problems Mm -hmm. and um, and, and being far too young to be experiencing the problems I was Mm -hmm. having and realized that it was connected to me trying to be all things to all people. Hmm. Right. Um, And that is what started my work with the strong black woman. But part of my path to healing became self-care and being very intentional about self-care. And 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 as soon as I started practicing self-care, I started experiencing major radical changes in my health and well-being um, and and felt compelled to teach it to other women. Right. And so I started in my women's ministry at my church mm-hmm. and, and and started teaching it there. And then I would do it in other places, in other ministry settings. I often found no matter where I was or why I was there, I ended up talking about self-care. I ended up um, encouraging clergy, encouraging um activists, especially faith-based activists, um, to take care of, of, of themselves, right? And so at some point I said, you know, I think I'm going to teach a class on this and I think it's time for me to write uh, a book on, on, on this. So I was initially thinking about it in terms of just activism when the pandemic happened mm. and the first um, full year into the pandemic, it was actually about three years ago at this time, 2021, as we were we were nearing Lent 
and people were trying to figure out like, what are we going to give up? And there was a lot of online chatter about, do we even give up anything this year? Right? Like we've already given up a lot. Like we've given up everything. Uh, I not, that. Not, right? <laughs> and so struggling to figure out what it means to practice Lent in the midst of a global pandemic where many of us had been living in quarantine and weren't seeing family and all of these other things. And one of my practices during Lent has often been instead of giving something up to take something on. And it's usually what is a practice that I can take on that will increase my health, strengthen my relationship with God and strengthen my capacity for ministry. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I thought that year, I said, why don't I just invite people into, into my practice, some of the things that I've done over, over the years. And so I started what the first year was an Instagram challenge um, on just self-care for Lent. Mm -hmm. right? And I did that. And, and about midway through that process, um, one of my, my ministry friends um, texted me and she said, you know, this is a book, right? And I said, I, I think you're right. I think this is a book, right? <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, in some ways it was it was doing it and then also just the support and that word from another woman in the ministry to kind of confirm that yes, this is what I should be writing on next. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's so good. Well, and it the book really you can tell that it flows out of your life that it's not something you had to go out and um research as a separate project, but that it was this is something that you've been living for a long time. So, um, and I love the way you, you structured it as, as a devotional. It really is. It's the perfect, um, length for Lent. So maybe we'll talk yeah. more about that a little later. And, um, as I was going through it, I really had to discipline myself to pull out just a few ideas to highlight because there were so many fascinating topics that you cover, but, um, let me start by asking, um, about this connection between self-care and spiritual formation. Um, in some Christian traditions, I think a person can encounter barriers between these two concepts. Um, there can be, you know, this question of what's the difference between self-care and self-indulgence, right? And like, why, why is it that this is going to benefit um, a person's spiritual formation? But you really think about them together. So can you talk a little bit about how self-care is good for our souls. Yeah. And I'll say this is something I stumbled on in my practice, right? Um, when I started um, practicing self-care intentionally, one of the side effects, unexpected, well, two side effects. One is I found that I felt more connected to and available to other people. I was interested in people. I would stop by my colleagues' offices just to check in, not because I needed anything. I was reaching out to people more. And so I thought, that's really strange, right? I'm focusing on myself and it makes me care about other people more. The other part was that it drew me closer to God. Hmm. And I felt more, um, and and I and and I've I'd had a strong relationship with God for a while. So this wasn't necessarily a, a conversion experience, but there was something about it where I felt the more I tuned in to myself, the more I felt I was hearing God. And I think it is because the way that I was thinking of the self, right? For me, the self is not this, just my ego, but the self is the person that was beautifully and wonderfully created in the image of God. 
And so self-care for me is about taking care of that, is recognizing that I am a gift of God. Every one of us is a gift from God. Our creation, our existence is a gift from God. How do I respond to that gift, right? Um, Do I respond to it by working myself to death and by um, overextending myself or do it, do I do it by saying, I'm going to take as best care of myself as I can in the ways that I eat and I drink and I sleep and I rest um, and I I worship, right? All of that is, is part of it. So I really was thinking about this whole person and what it means to be a whole person and how the spiritual and the physical and the emotional are very much tied together. Yeah. Well, you spend a lot of time talking about these fundamentals, about, you know, basic things like drinking water and eating nourishing food and moving our bodies. Um, And it's interesting, I think, especially for people in academia, I think that kind of that kind of person, it's very easy to get lost in the life of the mind and forget about the body. Yeah. So. I guess what what recommendations maybe for someone who would want to begin to dabble in this practice, what would what recommendations would you have for someone who could use some extra encouragement to connect with the needs of the body? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that higher education does is it does distance us in a lot of ways from our bodies. Um, I, I, I tell people, you know, the way you get a Ph.D. is you learn how to keep your butt in that seat. when you would rather be doing other things when maybe your friends are doing other things no you're sitting down you're reading maybe you've got to go to the bathroom but you're like nope I'm going to keep reading you need to get something to eat you're like nope I'm going to keep reading or maybe you just eat by your desk while you're writing right we so we we what we do is not only are we distanced from our bodies but we actually learn to repress our bodies and our bodies' needs in search of higher education. And then, of course, it doesn't end after we get the degree. It continues right. into our careers. So for me, a lot of this was about learning to honor my body and listen to my body and recognize that my body was not um, inferior to my mind, but that it's all one package, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my body isn't inferior to my spirit. It's all one package. I only experience life, this gift from God. I only experience that through my body, right? Um, My mind works through my body. And so to realize that, oh, it's not separate, it's together. And that the, the, the health of the mind is also connected to the health of the body sometimes, right? Not not completely, um, but it can be. And so thinking about um, the body in that way, like, oh, I need this body. So really simple things we can do is really thinking about how much time do we spend sitting down each day, right? A lot of our work as professionals and as academics, especially, is about sitting down. Mm-hmm. But the, the more we sit, like that is the, that is directly proportional to having health issues. Yeah. Like sitting more than six hours a day is bad for our health. Our job requires it. So then can I add movement in my day, right? Can I make myself get up? Like when my Apple Watch tells me to stand, right. do I actually stand, right? right. <laughs> 
<laughs> so like, oh, I'm going to stand. I'm going to walk around for every part of every hour. I'm going to strive to get up and, and move around. I'm going to take breaks during my day, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to say, I will actually take a lunch break where I will sit away from my work, away from the computer and and eat lunch, right? It's really little things like that, but as little as they sound, they can be so difficult for those of us who have been socialized to just keep going, keep pushing through, stay focused, right? It, yeah. It's very difficult for us to do that. Yeah. It seems like, I mean, there's an element of it too, that, you know, acknowledging our creatureliness um, means that we are finite, we are fallible, we are not God, and that we have to just acknowledge that we're little we're little beings, that knowing that if we can act out of um, remembering that we are just a, a creature, that that helps us to acknowledge God's sovereignty over it all. Absolutely. I actually think that's the big lesson of Sabbath, of Sabbath practice is it does remind us that, oh, we're not God. Look, we sat down and the world kept going, right? Like, <laughs> And so it's, it's quite striking that that commandment is the one that most Christians ignore. Like we just like, it's, it's not applicable. <laughs> the one that most reminds us not to make idols of ourselves, not to make idols of our own work is the one that we ignore over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. Well, I also, I want to ask um, too about, you have um, one, one whole section where you talk about boundaries, healthy boundaries. And this, I was really drawn to this topic. Um, I feel like I've been learning a lot about healthy boundaries, you know, in my relationships for decades, but there's still just so much growth to be had as we were saying earlier, you know, that, um, that, that, um, inability to say no, or that difficulty in saying no, that, that can be really challenging. So can you say a little bit more about the relationship between healthy boundaries and self-care and why that's important to pay attention to? Yeah. You know, when it comes down to it, self-care is pretty simple, right? I mean, it's drink water eat the right food for your body, get enough sleep, move in good ways for your body, have good relationships. Like that's simple on the face of it. Um, And often we know what we need to do for ourselves. The problem for many of us, particularly women, is that we allow other things to encroach upon the space and time that is necessary for self-care. So it's not that I don't know I need to exercise. Right. It's that I'm trying to figure out how much more do I need to work and how much how much more can I stay at work long enough to get this done? And then I got to get my kid to his practice, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do I get the kid to the practice? And then we got dinner. That dinner needs to be, st- right? And it's trying to fit it in between mm-hmm. all the other things and the way that we let other things crowd out our self-care space. So boundaries are important because it helps us to preserve the space. Mm. It helps us to be clear about what our needs are. um, And and then to say, how do I get my needs met? Right. Um, And so that's what boundaries really are for me. Boundaries are ways of saying, I'm going to end my workday 
at three so that I do have time to go to the gym before I have to go get the kid and that this is non-negotiable or it's that my writing is really important to me. So I'm going to schedule it in, in my calendar, right? So that I don't allow meetings and other responsibilities to encroach uh, uh, upon it. Having a, a day of rest um, is important for me. So I'm going to schedule that in, right? And mm -hmm. so boundaries are um, something we do every day and we have to do it multiple times a day in order to preserve our own care and well-being. Yeah. And it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think, I mean, I think it's true that we really need that in order to create that space for self-care. And the other thing I've found is that if I don't create that space for self-care, if I start to let my boundaries become permeable, permeable in a way that um, uh, that I don't really embrace, then I can start to feel resentful and I can start to act out in ways that aren't healthy for me, where I spend you know, too much time on my phone or watching a show or um, not that those things are bad, but just that it's not, if I don't take that time to nourish myself, I'm going to take it somewhere. You will, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're not going to be functioning at your best. Yeah. And so then when you are doing work, it's taking you longer, right? Yeah. Your creativity is, is diminished. Maybe you're with your family, but you're not in the best mood because you're not, you know, so it's not quality time that you're you're giving them. Um, and yes, I do the same thing. I realize when I am not taking care of myself, I will spend so much time like just doom scrolling, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at some point I'll say like, this isn't nourishing. Why am I doing this? But it is because I'm depleted. Right. Right. Whereas if I had actually stopped work earlier in the day or maybe just taken a pause to eat something healthy or to get just a little bit of activity in, that would have given me more energy later in the day so that I could be more purposeful in in in, in my activities. Right. But yeah. our bodies have this way of taking their time like whether we give it to them or not. So we can either give our body the time now or our bodies will take the time later, yeah. right? Um, whether that comes in the form of illness as it does for so many of us and and, and disability um, and, 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 you know, both mental and physical health issues often come up when we don't give our bodies the time they need. I want to ask about um, one, one thing you write about regarding disciplining our minds to help us in our self-care and spiritual formation journeys. And you talk about things like um, a meditation practice and mindfulness and scripture. And I'd love for you to say a little bit more about how we can care for ourselves through our minds. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, um, again, this is a way of checking in with myself. I've been socialized to um think most about like how I'm being productive and trying to be useful and trying to be helpful to other people and taking care of the needs of other people and even other institutions, right? So I'm the person where if we're in the room talking about something that needs to be done, I'm likely to raise my hand and say, I'll do it, right? right or right. Um, if we're sitting and I'm seeing that person has a need to, to respond to that. 
One of the consequences of that is that I wasn't good at focusing on myself or noticing even Hmm. when my body started sending me signals that something was wrong. So mindfulness for me is really a way of training myself to focus on my present experience, right? Um, It's what's here now. It allows me to focus on in my body, right? Oh, wait, there's pain there, right? And say, huh, what what needs to happen there? Um, Do I need to call a doctor about that? Is that something? Or do, do I need to stretch more today because I'm experiencing something there? And so it's really a way of, of focusing inward. Um, it also allows me to be fully present in the moments, especially when I'm with other people to say, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to this person. I want to be fully present with them, mm-hmm. right? Um, and be able to pay, instead of in my stressed mind, thinking about like, I need this interaction, hurry up and be over because I really got to go do this other thing next, right? So mindfulness is a way of helping me to to do that um, and helping me to find peace in the midst of the moment. So in a lot of ways, I think of mindfulness practices as a technique for living out some of like the fruits of the spirit, mm-hmm. you know, patience, self-control, yeah. <laughs> right? Because it helps me to say, oh, wait, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, where I might mind mindlessly eat something, but mindfulness says, slow down. Why am I reaching for that? Mm-hmm. Am I stressed? Is that a, is that a stress eating response that I want to, I want to eat cookies right now? Like, what is that about? Right. And asking myself, is that really what is needed in this moment? Maybe what my body is telling me, I need something else or mm-hmm. having the mindfulness to say, I have been working for three hours now and I have not gotten a single thing done. Mm-hmm. I think I'm tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I'm tired. Let me pause. Let yeah. me go and take, so mindfulness supports me in doing that. And and I'm the type of person who needs that support. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask also about your writing. You really reaffirm this strong connection between self-care and the work of justice and this truth that self-care ultimately helps us to care for others in both big and small ways. I I love this idea and I think it makes so much sense. Um, Can you unpack this connection for our listeners? Yeah. So I've been, um, through my work in racial justice, I have been both in Christian community development settings, like urban ministry settings, and and working with justice advocates for a long time. And would often notice the ways in which the urgency of the work and the needs would often lead people to extend themselves to the point of exhaustion, to the point of sickness, um, to the point of family conflict and marital disruption, right? Um, To see people's relationships wither because of ministry, right? Like it was, it was because they were doing God's work in the world and, and serving the underserved or working for justice issues and, talking to people about the need for self-care and seeing the resistance that justice-minded people have about self-care, right? This, no, there's too much work. There's, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sleep when we, when we get to that point, right? Or, you know, or even you'll hear people, I'll sleep when I'm dead. There's just too much work to be done, right? (laughs) And I think there's a real danger of idolatry 
with mm. that, where we begin to think that God's work in the world is completely dependent on our our, our individual efforts, um, as opposed to this collective effort that's being fueled by God, right? Um, but then there was also the case that I was seeing a lot of early death, a lot of um, sudden death. I I I, I talk about. Um, um, not in the book, but in some of my teaching, I talk about um, sudden ministry death syndrome, mm. this sort of sudden, unexpected death of people in ministry, in Christian social justice work, in activism, um, where um, people have just worked themselves to the point of of illness and begin to really think about the ways in which self-care, we often think about it as sort of the enemy to, to ministry, right? Mm-hmm. But really it is what fuels our ministry and allows us um, to use Paul's words to, to fan and to flame the gift, mm-hmm. right? It is this period of rest. I mean, we see God embodying and, and giving us this example of you work and then you rest, right? Um, but that it allows us to come to the work, um, whatever that work is with more creativity, um, with more sense of faithfulness, um, I think, you know, mindfulness helps us to pay attention to the good things that are happening. It can be very easy to feel overwhelmed by the negative things that are happening in our world. Like there's bad news every time we turn on the news. There's news oh, of yeah. war and violence and, um, yeah, natural disasters e- everywhere. So to be able to say, oh, but there are signs of hope. And hope is really important for us to keep us going. When we Mm -hmm. begin to um, have hopelessness, we burn out, right? Mm -hmm. And so thinking about the problem of burnout in ministry and many other places, I really begin to see self-care as sort of the antidote to to burnout and to decreasing our risk for burnout so that we could keep doing the good work that God wants us to do, but also so that we could be clear about what our work is and what what it isn't, right? What's mm-hmm. what's the collective work? What's what's the the eschatological work, the work that God is going to have to do in God's own time, right? And we can't force that. Um but really what what am I being called to do just in this in this moment? Um and again, it does all connect us back to our creatureliness. Yeah. That even as we're doing work that f- feels like superhuman to realize we are very much human. Yeah. Well, and it occurs to me that, you know, this, this work of self-care, I mean, I think when, when people hear that word, they think of bubble baths and, um, you know, let's go get a massage or, and those things can be good, but it's really so challenging. It's, there's um, so much um, self-awareness and self-knowledge is needed of understanding one's own gifts and one's own limits. And then also um, the ability to listen for God's voice and listen for God's call on your life so that you can hear clearly what it is that he has for you to do and what it is that um, that is not for you to do, that, you know, what things you can put to the side. So this is... Um, you know, v- far from being um, a light and fluffy topic, it's really very serious. Yeah. And self-care isn't even always pleasant, right? So not only is it not always this indulgent stuff, most of the time it isn't, um, but sometimes it's not pleasant. Like when I go and get blood work done, 
because I need to know how my cholesterol and blood sugar, that self-care, it does not feel good. Right. 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 <laughs> Right. Exercise. If you're a person who loves exercise, then maybe that feels good. But for some of us, no, we're only doing it because we need to. Right. right, um, right. And so sometimes self-care doesn't feel good, but it's about doing what is needed, um, not necessarily what is pleasant. Yeah. Right. It is what is helpful and what is useful. And most of self-care, I think, doesn't cost money. Um, I'm I'm in the midst of teaching a January intensive on on self care, and we're having a self care um, um, practice day. And for my day, I didn't need to leave the house. I didn't need to spend a dime. Right? It was I'm going to get up and I'm going to do yoga, mm -hmm. and I'm going to actually eat, cook, and eat a healthy breakfast. And I'm going to spend some time in prayer and meditation. And I'm going to sit down and look at my schedule and try to figure out when I can put in breaks and get a sense of, is, does my schedule reflect the rhythms that I need to have for my life? Or do I need to make some changes? Where am I fitting in rest? Yeah. Um, what's the balance of work and play? Um, it's, it's, it's all of those things. But there's not a massage in it, right? There could be. Mm -hmm. Right. And I believe in massage. I get regular massage. Um, there could be a pedicure, but that's not necessarily what's needed um, at, at, at this point. Right. So it's really sometimes about figuring out, um, yeah, the healthy things. Yeah. We're, we're going to cook dinner as opposed to we're not doing takeout on on this day. Right. I'm not going to let my stress hijack my my taste buds so that we end up craving um, things that are bad for us. But we're, we're going to eat the good food today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. All of that is not, that's not sexy stuff, right? That's mm -hmm. not, that's not going on a trip or going to a day spa or anything, but it's, it's, it's more important than, yeah. than all of that stuff is. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's shaping a life that is sustainable and where you don't need to then say, oh, I've just had it. I need a vacation or I need a whatever that you know, those things can all get built in to a healthy rhythm, but we don't want to run ourselves ragged so that then we need to stop everything and have some kind of crash. Right. Yeah. 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 Self-care in a lot of ways is trying to eliminate the crashes. Yeah. Right. It It is. How do we, how do we bring these rhythms into our daily life? Because we were created to need these rhythms, right? Yeah. Everything um, sleep, water, like all of these basics, our bodies were designed to need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a message that I think makes so much sense for our listeners. Um, so let's talk uh, for a moment about women in academic and professional contexts and how they can use this book. Um, Maybe I'll start off by asking, is there anything that you'd like to highlight particularly for women in academia as they explore the concept of sacred self-care? We've touched on this quite a bit through our whole conversation, but anything else you wanted to, to point out or raise? Yeah, I do think this way of um, living into the freedom that we have, I, I, I think we really do underestimate it. It is a privilege. It's not something everybody gets. And sometimes we can feel guilty about that. Um, 
but it is one of the great privileges that that we have. Um, you know, I I in part chose this as a career because I wanted a career that would allow me um, to use my mind and do good work and to be available for my kid and my families. Uh, you know, when I had a family, I, I was like, I want a job where I can go to the to the meeting at school, right mm -hmm. in yeah. the afternoon, and so. Um, and and so it is a great privilege that that we've been we've been given. We've worked hard for it, but it is a is a great privilege, I think, to own that and and to take that. But the other thing is to support each other in those efforts. So women who are in academic spaces to be talking to one another. Um, the more that even we learn to say no together, the easier it gets yeah. when we're using our collective voice to say no or to say this is an unreasonable load. But for us to do that jointly, because the academy teaches us you make your decision for yourself and you just try to jockey to get the best thing for you. Mm -hmm. But if we try to do it collectively, I find that it works better. And if we hold each other in support, it it works better as 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 well. Yeah, that and that that community that um, that sisterhood really there is a lot of power in that. A lot, yeah. Something you said is um, I'm having kind of a um, a light bulb go off about the privilege of being able to um, take some time for self care, and I do wonder if do you think it's possible that um, for some people, when we acknowledge the privileges that we have, that we, we acknowledge that we do have some space for self-care, that we resist that because we don't want to, um, one has to take responsibility when you acknowledge that you have that privilege. And so if you say, oh, I can't, I can't do that, that then maybe that feels like it relieves us of the responsibility of doing this. Am I, am I making sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we, I, I'm convinced that privilege is not a helpful word hmm. in a lot of ways, even though I use the word, but we've somehow have come to think of privileges as something that, you know, a, one group has, or some groups have that other groups don't have. And the sense is that the group who has it doesn't deserve it. Hmm. Most of the time when we're talking about privilege, we're actually talking about something that everybody should have, right? Yeah. It's not that what we want to do is take that away from right. the group who has it. It's no, how do we create a world where everybody has that? Mm -hmm. And I think even just framing it in that way helps us to see, oh, so it's not that self-care and the ability to care for myself is a privilege and a luxury that I somehow don't deserve, right? Because other people don't have it. No, I should have self-care. They should as well. Yeah. Right. And I don't have to deny myself that because someone else doesn't have it. I can, I can both um, use my privilege and work so that other people can have that so that eventually we can stop calling it privilege, right? We can say, this is just what it is to be human. You get this, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think if we begin to think about it as, and so yeah, our, our ability to say no and set our schedule and just ask, right? Sometimes in, in, in higher ed, I am learning, again, after 20 years, the value of asking for what I need. Mm-hmm. And seeing what happens. And I am often surprised at how easy it is to get what I need. It doesn't always happen. But sometimes I say, 
I really need this class to be structured in this way. And this is the reason pedagogically, right? Is this helps me to be a better teacher if it's structured this way. This helps fulfill my my need. I have some health issues. This is what I need. What can you do for me as the institution? And I'm surprised by how often there is a response of maybe all of what I need can't be met, but you know, we could actually do it this way, right? It gets me a little bit closer. Whereas I think so many of us, we don't even ask. We don't know that it we can ask. We don't know that there's possibility. Mm-hmm. So I think for us to say, wait a minute, like there's a such thing as shared faculty governance and there's some flexibility in organizations. And, and we know there's a so how how can I utilize the the benefits of the organization to benefit me as 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 well? Mm-hmm. Right. Um and again. That's balancing that with meeting the needs of the institution, right? I'm I'm going to make sure this need is met. You'll never have to ask me to teach the intro class, right? I I will volunteer to teach Mm -hmm. the intro class. In return, this is what I need over here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And for us to really begin to realize that we have that power very often and we just aren't using it. Well, and I think it points to your own habits of self-care that you have the space to imagine what it is that you need, that you can get clear about your needs and then imagine a world where those needs were met. You know, it takes, I mean, it it takes a minute to have that creativity, to be able to imagine what it is that you want. It really does. And that's one of, you know, and it, it takes space and time, right? Which is why I then need a day where I'm just looking at my calendar and saying, yeah. how does this work? what makes me feel good in terms of how to live? Like, what are the rhythms that support me? How can that work institutionally, right? And to begin to say that. And then sometimes when I get stuck to call my dean and say, I've got this dilemma, right? I I need something that looks like that. I don't think that's possible. And for my dean then, because she has an even greater imagination of what's possible and, and to say, okay, how about this? And I'm like, that's perfect. Yeah. And so again, for us to just begin to say, oh, we do have some freedom. Maybe we don't even know what that freedom looks like, but let's, let's be curious about it. Let's be open. Let's not assume that people have said it has to be done this way because it's always been done this way. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's true, but maybe it could also be tried another way. Right. Um, And sometimes we get to do that. So I'm learning to um, ask more um, at this point in my life than I ever have before. And again, I've been surprised and and, and to realize that people do want to support good work. They want to support people that they know support the the institution Um, and, and to see how that happens. But also the flip side is is true, too. The more that we do without asking for support, the more we are expected to do without mm-hmm. asking for support. So for women in higher ed, if if you keep building bricks without straw, you will never be giving straw. Mm. Never. Right. Because the institution looks at you and says, oh no, she can do it. 
Yeah. Right. And then they start to expect you to do it and to punish you if you don't do it. Right. right, right. And so it's better to go in and say, no, I, I need straw and I need really good quality straw and I need good working hours to do this. And this is the type of support that I need to really be clear about what what that is and, and, and what you need to do. Well, Shaniqua, thank you so much for this time. And I I know that our readers will be interested in learning how to follow you and your work and you know what you have on the horizon. Can you tell us a little bit about um about how to how to keep up with you? Yeah, the best way to keep up through me uh with me is through my um Substack, um drshaniqua.substack.com. It comes out weekly, um writings about faith and healing and justice. And then about once a month as part of that, um, I do a, a, a meditation podcast, which is a combination of um, secular and Christian practices that are often based on on some theme as, as well. But yeah, I look forward to seeing people follow and give comments and interacting. Dr. Shaniqua's gentle encouragement to understand our own needs and ask for support is challenging and inspiring. I pray that even in this community, we can urge one another to be bold in asking for the help we need. Shaniqua's book, Sacred Self-Care, is available wherever fine books are sold, and I hope you consider picking up a copy. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our podcast where Shaniqua talks about how to use this book during Lent. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcast as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Shaniqua. I want to talk about um, using this book in Lent. You have some specific instructions about how to do that. And we're going to release this episode um, before Lent this year, which starts on February 14th in 2024. (laughs) Um, So can you tell us a little bit about if someone wanted to use this book during Lent, how would they go about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, the book can be used at any time of year, but I did start writing it as this outgrowth of this Lent um, experience that I had. And so it it is a seven week book that is designed to start on, um, you started on a Monday. Mm-hmm. So Ash Wednesday would actually be day three. And this is to kind of make it seven, seven weeks. Sure. Um, each week has a different theme. Um, with the idea that um, there's a little practice to be done every day. Um, And the practices are designed to be done by people who are busy, Mm -hmm. right? So they don't take a lot of of time. I want it to be doable. I want it to be something you can think about or a little shift you can make without a lot of preparation. You don't have to need anything to do it, right? Um, 
And then on, on Sunday, there's an invitation into a, a deeper period of sort of um, worship and reflection and um, on the week's theme and connecting it to the story of, of, of faith. The entire devotional um, uses scripture, which is different than when I did it on Instagram. I was just focusing on the practices mm -hmm. there. Um, but with um, writing the book, um, finding scripture to support each theme and each practice and weaving that together so that we have a really good theological and biblical basis for thinking about self-care. And then it invites you as you get closer to the end of Lent, it is designed to help you create your own self-care rule of life. So this idea that what we do during Lent shapes our lives all year, like it's not just a 40 day experience, yeah. but rather, um, you know, Lent is patterned after Jesus going up into to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and fasting, but doing that to prepare, right? That mm -hmm. was a, a season of preparation right. um, for what was to come. And so thinking about this as this is to prepare us to live more deeply into self-care all year round. Yeah. I love that. I'm I'm excited about um, giving this book a try during Lent. I actually I've never liked Lent because, um, well, in my upbringing and in you know in the in the tradition I grew up in, I, it felt like a lot of guilt and a lot of you know shoulds and shouldn'ts and um and grief and sadness. But this feels <laughs> very life giving and um and nourishing in a way that um, that I'm excited to try. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think really Lent should strengthen our capacity for ministry. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes what we need is what's nourishing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely.